Another day, another episode from this one-man cult. Speaking of pro wrestling yesterday, there was a wrestler when I was growing up named, maybe a little bit before my time, but his name was One Man Gang, and I always loved that name. One Man Gang, and this show is One Man Cult. It's no longer night school, it's no longer every night's a school night, it's One Man Cult. I feel like that's okay, though. I feel like that's acceptable to be a one-man cult. Cults become a problem when it's a two-man cult, a three-man cult, a hundred-man-and-woman cult. Oh, you've heard about that pro wrestler, uh, one-man gang? Well, I'm I'm a one-hundred-man-and-woman cult. <laughs> uh, that's when things get, get off, but... Um, uh, yeah, I feel like people can't really help themselves right now, and they want to get really apocalyptic. And people really can't avoid that kind of theorizing and speculating and almost hoping. Almost hoping. You see it a lot. In just about any belief system, there's some sort of prophecy about the apocalypse. We can't help but think about the end of the world and get really serious about it and act like we know exactly how it's going to play out. It doesn't matter whether it's the end of the Kali Yuga, whether it's the Book of Revelation, whether it's the Norse Ragnarok. There's this tendency to embrace the idea of apocalypse, and the more ingrained that is in a certain belief system, the more that people hope for it. And I don't think people should fear it. I don't think people should fear the apocalypse. It's sort of like death. I mean, you know, I've been talking a lot about death, obviously, and it's it's kind of like uh, accepting death. That's how I feel about the apocalypse, because what the apocalypse is, is it's the larger death. It's the larger death of, you know, not just our species, but the world. It's some sort of world-scale death. And... In the same way that you can take a personal philosophy toward death and say, I'm going to do nothing to invite death, I'm not going to welcome death, but I'm going to accept the inevitability, and when it's here, I'm going to do what I can to make that an easy process. And I feel like the same can be applied toward apocalypse. Uh, But people get into this mindset where they feel like they have to almost worship apocalypse, and people do that with death as well. People get into this death worship. You know, I am had a long-term interest in, you know, underground metal, death metal, black metal, where people feel the need to be like, I worship death. You know, it's like, and I never, I was never attracted to that idea of worshiping it. It's almost like overcompensating. It comes across like overcompensating to me. Like someone who's so fearful of that thing that they have to act like they love it and they want it. But really there's this, I, I just get this sense of fear in it. Um, it's attachment. I mean, it is, it's another form of attachment, another form of grasping where you're trying to hold on. It's, it's like you're so afraid of death that you're holding on to it and not letting go. Uh, whereas I feel like the healthiest, the most natural approach to something like death or apocalypse, because I want to talk more about apocalypse, is to just, if that's going to be the state of things, not to encourage it, not to welcome it, but to accept it and make the process as easy as you can make it. 
easy for you. And in making it easy for you, that can only make things a little bit easier for other people. Again, we go back to that idea of you're so puny, but you do have so much control. And in your puniness and in your puny ability to control your own life, that actually has an impact on everybody. And if that impacts everybody and they all manage their own puny lives, that has a pretty big impact. Uh, And I I, I feel the same way about apocalypse where it's just, it's like, okay, um, and you can frame apocalypse. I mean, a lot of these apocalyptic stories, the focus is on them. The focus is on the destruction and the pain and the war, all of these obvious negatives, undeniable negatives. It's hard to reframe those things. You know, it's hard to think positive about, um, you know, famine, plague, war, the destruction of our very world. You know, it's hard to think positive about that. Yet, a lot of apocalyptic stories involve a rebirth. You know, going back to the the Kali Yuga or Ragnarok, it's there's there, there's a rebirth when all is said and done. So there is a beginning along with the end, but people seem to focus on the end, and that's what people are doing right now. I'm seeing a lot of it. I'm seeing a lot of people. You know, just how quickly that switch gets flicked. You know, how quickly that switch gets flicked, where suddenly you have two weeks of having to stay inside to avoid getting sick and spreading sickness, and everybody's like, it's the end of the world. And there's a sense of humor to it, but it's one of those things that reinforces itself. And I'm seeing a lot of people who are starting to genuinely believe that. And it's pretty egotistical, too, because it's like, I could die, I could go through great hardship, life could get very difficult, Let's say that Corona is so bad that everybody dies. Is that the end of the world too? You know, it's one of those things where there's this, this, this level of um, there's something kind of egotistical or narcissistic about it, in my opinion. And people immerse themselves in it, though. I mean, I was blown away. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised at this point, but people are. Listening to things like REM, it's the end of the world as we know it. Like that's it, I apparently shot up as one of the most popular songs right now, and I'm embarrassed to hear that. As much as I'm trying not to criticize people's attempts to cope, I mean it's hard. Sometimes you just do it. I'm trying not to be too critical, especially with increased isolation. I think it's very easy to be critical, and we should instead find the ways to bridge gaps that we can and not world peace. It doesn't have to be anything grandiose, but just, you know, make and preserve our connections. That's important. But that said, you know, I think being in a state of isolation, you know, you you, you should make an effort not to lash out because you're going to have to deal with that. It, you're going to be in a, it's going to ricochet. If you're stuck inside and you're, lashing out at people, not literally like attacking them or talking to them in a way that's abusive, but even just mentally thinking negative thoughts about people, you already hear that that bounces back to you and in some ways is really about you to begin with. But when you're stuck inside and you don't, you're having way fewer interactions with people, that ricochet is going to be a lot more immediate and probably more severe. So for that reason, even just my, you know, beyond just wanting to have good relationships with people, 
out of my own self-interest, I don't want to feel critical of people right now. But that said, I'm going to give myself a pass here and say it's embarrassing to hear that people are listening to REM, It's the End of the World as We Know It. It's embarrassing to me that people are immersing themselves in apocalyptic art and media and embracing that idea. And I'm not saying you have to surround yourself with blooming flowers and, you know, positive childlike melodies, you know, I I don't, I don't embrace that myself. Uh, But just hearing that like people are are just going all in two weeks indoors, and there might be a tongue in cheek element, but I am living proof that if you even do something tongue in cheek, if you joke about something, that's going to become your reality. So much of who I am is the product of me joking around. It's why people are scared of even like racist jokes, because it's like, (laughs) because you make enough racist jokes and you might become a little more racist. You might not become, you know, a, you're not going to start ordering, you know, German replica swastika flags on the internet necessarily, but you might become a little more open to that way of thinking. And I think that I'm proof of that in different ways, not in that way, but just in different ways where I've realized that I've joked about something, and people think that if you joke about something, it means you secretly believe it. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think the more you joke about something, the more that you start to kind of become that. Uh, and and that sh- it's not a reason to avoid humor or shut down. I, I believe in all humor. I, I, I there's Humor is the one thing that maybe, there, maybe there's some argument somewhere for censorship or for just limiting free speech. I personally don't believe in that. I personally don't believe in limiting free speech. Um, However, I do realize that even sense of humor has an impact on who you are the more you joke about something. But I see this with people with this apocalyptic media where people are embracing this idea of, oh, it's the end of the world. I've been in... I've been inside for two weeks, and uh, I'm just going to go all in. And, and it's a cult. It's very cult-like. And you see where it's almost unavoidable for people to think about that. And it's a feedback loop, too, because we have all of these existing belief systems that have been around as long as there has been a record of human ideas, uh, and those involve the apocalypse. So we already know those ideas exist, and they're in our head from birth because those are we just inevitably come across them. I mean, even if you had no idea what Norse mythology was all about, you watch a Marvel movie and you get introduced to the idea of Ragnarok. You know what I mean? It's like these things creep in all kinds of other places. It's not just scripture. It's not just uh, having direct experience with the belief systems themselves. You know, I never read the Bible growing up. I was raised in a secular household, yet I knew about the book of Revelation. You know, I, I knew all about that. You know, I, I not all the, the gritty details, but I knew the bigger picture. I knew that was a part of Orthodox Christianity for sure. And so we end up kind of joking ar- around about that, but we end up with our own apocalyptic theories too. And you can see that with global warming. And it's not that I'm a global warming denier at all. But I can see where an apocalypse cult has formed around that. 
And it's not that we shouldn't do what we can to prevent some scathing fire from burning down our forests and wiping everything out. It's not that we shouldn't do what we can to prevent that, because I agree with that. Not only am I not a global warming denier, I support measures to preserve our natural world. But you can see where there's this cult that's developed around it. And where people, they're obsessed with the idea of this global warming apocalypse that's supported by science. And it's one of the reasons why I think science does have parallels to religion. In, in addition to the dogmatism, the tunnel vision, you know, the, the sort of internal lexicon that is developed around science, and not just the words themselves, but the way that people are, are, they've developed this system that works in certain ways. It works for manipulating and modifying our world. Science works in that way, and understanding what's inside of things. I don't think science provides much meaning, but it does give us a way of understanding what's within things and how things operate together on a mechanical level, if nothing else. Uh, but we can see where even something like science, which is supposedly completely different, it's supposedly the other side of... It, 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 supposedly it couldn't be... People act like it couldn't be further away from religion, yet it has its own apocalypse, uh, apocalypse theory, global warming, climate change. Uh, it, it has, you know... It, it's very similar in certain ways, and it seems like we inevitably find a way to believe in the apocalypse. And why wouldn't we? We know we personally are going to experience our own mini-apocalypse in death, so why wouldn't we think about that on a larger level, especially when we know that certain creatures have gone extinct? Uh, and, and you can get into that. I mean, I could, I shouldn't do this, but... When you think about the fact that we discover dinosaur bones and then we create fictional stories where we render them and they become insanely popular and we see dinosaurs everywhere in fiction and museums too for that matter. Even outside of fiction we see their bones reassembled, we see drawings, we see renderings both in creative fields where it's like oh I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a book for children that and Land Before Time, for that matter, you know, animated series where it's like this cartoon where dinosaurs talk. You know, it could be that or it could be something very scientific where we're like, we think this is what they look like because of A, B, and C. It could be something totally ridiculous like talking dinosaurs, you know, in rainbow colors to something in a scientific manual, you know? It doesn't really matter, but are dinosaurs truly extinct if we've been able to do that with them? Is a creature really extinct if we've managed to incorporate them into our current reality? And even though they aren't living biological things right now, they're living in just about every other way. We've managed to keep them alive in just about every other way, and we still have their bones. So the idea of dinosaurs is very real and very alive, even in our current world. So can we say they are truly extinct? And I don't mean that to be some, like, doesn't it just blow your mind? I'm just blowing your mind, right? Uh, I don't even mean for it to be that kind of thing, but that was just a tangent. And what I'm really talking about, though, is just this, this need to get apocalyptic. 
and uh, you can see it right now. And a good friend of mine, he recommended Camus. I don't know if he heard the recent episode where I've been talking about Camus and uh, Sisyphus a lot, but he just happened to rec- uh, recommend Camus, The Plague. And I, he's he has great taste in, in books, and I take his recommendations very seriously. But I'm like, I can't do that. I can't read a book called The Plague right now. I just can't. It's not something I can do. I can't immerse myself in current event-oriented um, literature, movies, music. I can't listen to R.E.M., It's the End of the World. I can't read a book called The Plague. I can't watch Contagion. If people are coping with the world or they're relating to what's going on through that, that's not a criticism. And I don't think, you know, reading or watching something is as nearly as embarrassing, or not even embarrassing at all, as listening to R.E.M., It's the End of the World. That's embarrassing. And if you're doing that, you know, you should be embarrassed. No, I don't, it's not an attack. Uh, you know, in the same way that I say preach what you need, you know, I anything that I criticize is is going to be... If it's not a criticism of myself, understand that I'm very critical of myself. And something unfortunate about our world today is that any criticism of yourself comes across like either like this false humility, this false self-deprecation, or it comes across as just brutal self-hatred. And it doesn't have to be any of those things. You can criticize yourself in a perfectly healthy way just to keep yourself sharp, just to keep yourself in check, and you don't have to make it some like horrible self-hatred where you look in the mirror and you just you can't even believe who can't even believe that person who's looking back at you. I can't even believe who's this guy? Who's this asshole with his Oh look, his he uh, he's got a muffin top over his belt. I don't even know. Whatever people do when they hate themselves these days, uh, you don't even have to do that, you know. But you can be critical of yourself. So I guess just my little disclaimer on criticizing people is that in the same way that if I sound like I'm preaching, I'm really preaching what I need. So if I'm criticizing, it's the same thing. And how do you preach without criticizing? Preach what you need, criticize what you don't need. That's my rap lyric. My apocalyptic rap lyric. <laughs> Preach what you need, criticize what you don't need. Didn't that was, And speaking of not needing something, I don't think that that needed to be said again in that voice. Um, See, that's what I mean. Criticism. I'm criticizing myself there, but that wasn't self-hatred. What you just heard was not self-hatred. It was keeping myself in check. Yeah, but as far as, and, and this is a good opportunity to transition, because I'm talking, I've been talking this whole episode about what you don't need. And so what do you need right now? Well, as a one-man cult, I can only speak to my own audience, which is me, but I know that in, in the last couple years, I haven't been able to immerse myself in dark subject matter quite as much, and it's not a new topic on this show, so I don't need to go into all the details of it, but I will say that right now I'm, I'm realizing the true value of that. 
And I'm not someone who's going to immerse myself in this excessively positive. I'm not, you know, there, there's this positivity industry that exists. And people manipulate, and, and the people who kind of manipulate positivity and have turned it into this industry, what they say isn't wrong, but on an aesthetic level, you know, the tone of it doesn't work for me, and it doesn't work for a lot of people. And unfortunately, because that whole positivity industry doesn't work for a lot of people, they reject positivity outright. But positivity can be a lot of things. I mean, I think of heroism. You know, I grew up in the age where the anti-hero was the coolest thing. You know, Batman, I've talked before about this, but I don't consider Batman a true anti-hero. He's a superhero who kind of looks and acts like an anti-hero, but he's not a true anti-hero. But I did grow up in the age where Image Comics was really big. Spawn became the most popular thing, and that's very much an anti-hero. This conflict, the crow, you know, these sorts of characters were very much anti-heroes. And so that kind of became the standard for my generation in a lot of ways, where superheroes were cheesy. They're, they're in, you know, all these, these bright colors. And, of course, they've become popular again because everything, you know, goes in waves. You know, there will be 10 years where cars have rounded sides. Cars are more round in shape. And then the next 10 years, they're square again. And each time they introduce a new car at the start of each decade, it's like, oh, that's so new. But really, it just in the same way that in the 90s, the 70s were popular, in the 2000s, the 80s were popular, in the 2010s, the 90s were popular, and in the same way that we've just entered this age of chaos now. No, but um, it, it, things we need to have a little break from things, and then they become new again. And isn't that what the apocalypse is when I was talking about rebirth, where it's like, oh, things have gotten to the point where everything's going to be destroyed, but we just need a little change of pace. We need to appreciate things growing out of nothingness again. We need to we need to appreciate a blank slate and things starting out fresh again. It's almost that same idea. Uh, and so, of course, with just talking about the superhero, anti-hero thing. It's like, of course, after the anti-hero era where it's like every character is in dark colors and, you know, they almost look like bad guys, but they're not bad guys. They're good guys, but they're conflicted good guys. They're conflicted and they don't do everything perfectly because they're, they're real. They're more real. And, of course, after, you know, 10, 15 years of that, what do we want? Oh, we want the heroic bright colors, you know, just the, you know, pure good guy. We want that again. And we're going to want the anti-hero again, too. You know, it, it just goes in phases. Um, and uh, what was I going to say, though, about, oh, yeah, just in terms of what you consume. So it's like with the positivity industry, the unfortunate part of that is is the way that that industry presents positivity the way that it frames positivity makes it very easy to reject the actual ideas associated with positivity or ideas that are helpful. And I've had to deal with that myself because that was one reason, honestly, why I embraced negative subject matter my entire life is because I just didn't like the way that positive or good subject matter was presented. But I had to kind of rip that away. You know, I had to rip that away from from the what I thought 
what I thought the foundation was. I had to kind of just pull it off the wall that it was on and understand it in my own terms, and I'm still doing that. Uh, and the same goes for music. And it's not just people listening to REM. I mean, it's also people really immersing themselves in the dark music they like, which is okay. You know, people cope with things. But I know for me personally, I, I talked recently about how you know, when I'm sad, I'm not going to play a sad song. When I'm happy, I'm not going to play a happy song. If I already have that feeling, I don't need anything to echo that or reinforce that. If I go through a breakup and I'm upset about that, I'm not going to listen to a breakup song. You know, there's young women who, at least of my generation, who they go through a breakup and what are they going to listen to? Beyonce Survivor. It empowers them and there's nothing wrong with that. But I know for me personally... I don't do that. I don't listen to that. And with the the radio show, with the Every Night's a School Night show, when I started doing that show, I was very conscious of that. Uh, you know, Every Night's a School Night, my evil radio twin at this point, uh, I, I was very conscious of that because there are a lot of sad, sappy songs on Every Night's a School Night. I mean, the genres that I play on there are devoted probably 70% of doo-wop songs, you know, 80% of country, some high percentage of the music that gets played on there is devoted towards sad, sappy, breakup, wallowing sort of music. And I didn't want the show to come across like that's what I was highlighting. And that's why if you listen to that show, I'm continually trying to recontextualize those songs or find oddities that don't necessarily cover that typical subject matter. It's because I don't want that show to come across like, oh, this is a show for broken hearts and sad people. I don't want to do a show like that, but I love that music. On a sonic level, you know, you know. as far as I'm concerned, I don't even speak English when I'm listening to that music. I don't even know what they're saying, even though I talk about the lyrics and titles nonstop. <laughs> I don't even know what they're saying. I just talk about it. Um, but it's like I didn't want that show to come across like it was about the exact emotion those people are conveying. And um, that's something I... T- I that, that's because that's how I am as a listener. That's how I am as someone who uh, consumes art to sound pretentious, but I mean, the reality is that's how I consume art is I have to, I have to, I have, I have to approach it on my own terms. I can't just be like, oh, it's, I'm sad. So I want to listen to a sad song. And it turns out that's how I approach apocalyptic media too. I don't want to just, because things feel like they're falling apart and there's uncertainty and there are all these things going on. I don't think the best way for me personally to cope with that is to watch a movie about the apocalypse or a plague or read a book about uh, pestilence. I mean, I'm reading the Bible, but it's like, it's different. We all we all have our little exceptions, you know, like, that's different. It's different when I do it. Uh, but the Bible's not just about pestilence. It's not a, a story. I mean, I think that's the point, too, is you can work these things into stories. You can have stories that involve these inevitable subjects. But, you know, right now, for example, like, I just can't let myself read a book called The Plague. 
I just can't. I can't do that. I can't listen to a song called It's the End of the World as We Know It. You know, on every speaking of Every Night's a School Night, on one of the early episodes, I played that Skeeter Davis song. Um, I think it's just called It's the End of the World, uh, and I think it's a breakup song, but I remember recontextualizing that when I played it. I, I didn't even mention the fact that it was a breakup song, I don't think. It's just, it's just this weird little... Um, airy it almost sounds whimsical but it's a dark song uh which is why i liked it and so uh is it skeeter davis i think it was skeeter davis i don't know i'm questioning everything now uh but uh you know it's that sort of it's that sort of thing like i'm not going to listen to that song right now i'm whether it's skeeter davis or davis david skeeter uh it's a girl but uh a girl named david that'd be good People are all about gender-neutral names or using guy names for women these days. A girl na- I still haven't met a girl named David. Um, but anyway, the apocalypse isn't here yet because I haven't met a girl named David. I'll know the apocalypse is truly around the corner, and I'll queue up REM, and I'll start watching Contagion when I meet a girl named David. Watch, I'll meet a girl named David today. Um, but, uh, I just met a girl named David right now. A girl named David just texted me out of the blue. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, it's just, it's not going to do me service to listen to that. But anyway, I wanted to get toward what, what I do want to surround myself with. And it's not cheesy, positive stuff. It's not bright, sunny, positive stuff, but I think there is ascendant and heroic subject matter that you can embrace. And it doesn't have to be, you know, Manila Road holding a sword above your head, although that always works. That always works. It doesn't have to be fantasy-oriented, heavy metal. You don't have to read Lord of the Rings, although I think that's good. I mean, I think these are all good examples, actually. Manila Road, Lord of the Rings... Um, things that have darkness in them, you know, and I think that's one of the issues with the positivity industry is you don't really see darkness explained with any expertise. And it's not that the people who have capitalized on that industry of self-help and all of those things, it's not that they haven't experienced darkness. It's not that they aren't currently experiencing darkness. But I feel like they don't really know how to bring it up in a way that's interesting. And I feel like it requires an interesting conversation about darkness if you're actually going to talk to people about what positivity is and you know i'd rather i'd rather get away from the term positivity itself because like i said like the subject matter that i'm embracing and have been but i'm particularly conscious of at this moment is not necessarily feel good it's not follow your bliss but there is a sense of there's a sense of struggle to it and i think that's why fantasy stories are good i think that's why you know power metal is good uh, which people are very ironic about. You know, their interest in that tends to be very ironic. They don't take it very seriously. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think there is this sense of heroism that you can surround yourself with or this sense of something. I mean, I think everybody has to feel it out on their own, what feels right. But I, I like the word ascendant. I like the word ascendant because what I see from people who immerse themselves in 
darkness right now and embrace this idea of the apocalypse and are wanting to consume apocalyptic media because they feel the apocalypse is coming. And by the way, guys, the apocalypse is much more gradual than this. If you think the, if you think the apocalypse is on your shoulders in the span of two weeks, guys, apocalypse is, is a much more gradual process than this. And I guess people have been feeling that way for years. But they also feel like a switch got flicked and the apocalypse was on their shoulders the second Donald Trump's felt got uh, uh, erected. The second Donald Trump's felt got erected, I, it was over. I knew the apocalypse was going to come. So people do have this sense that like the apocalypse is sudden. And maybe I'm the one who's wrong. Maybe a lightning bolt will come. Maybe a comet will fall. I don't know. I'm not an expert either. I'm not a prophet. I haven't written an apocalyptic prophecy out. I haven't graphed this shit. Um, I don't even own a calculator. Uh, but uh, uh, ask a scientist. But, but anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, it's like ascendant is the word. What makes me feel like I am ascending in some way? Not like I'm going to be saved, but what frames my brain in such a way that I feel capable of ascendance opposed to descendance, opposed to descending? Because what I see when you immerse yourself in apocalypse, the second that, you know, you have to stay inside for a couple weeks and there might be civil unrest and uncertainty... Uh, surrounding our basic necessities, which makes sense. You know, that's a personal apocalypse for sure. Um, you know, a small-scale apocalypse maybe in your own life. But it's like you're descending. Don't descend. That's what I would say is don't descend. Find things that are ascendant. Find things that help you, you know, stay, even if it's just a gradual incline. Just like the apocalypse itself isn't a dramatic drop-off necessarily, just like my view of the apocalypse is far more gradual, I think ascendance can be a gradual process too. Uh, It's like, you know, this isn't a great example of of, uh, going up, but still, it's like if you're in a boat and you just gradually adjust the, whatever that thing's called, like on the back of the boat, if you adjust that that whatever the thing's called on the back of the boat, uh, but the, uh, it's like a little fin. It's just a fin, you know? It's like a fish. Um, if you adjust the fin on the back of the boat, I can't remember what that's called. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to look it up. Uh, it, but you'll start to veer a certain way. And initially, you're not going to veer that much farther away from your original route. Say you were going straight in a boat, and you just veer the boat a little bit to the right. Just barely. You know, a couple miles later, you're not going to be that far away from the path that you were on. But when you get 100 miles, you're going to be way farther out there. You're going to be much farther out there. And, you know, 500 miles later, you're going to be... Nobody's going to ever think you were even on that original route. You're going to forget you were on that original route. And it started with you just barely veering. You just barely veered to the right, and 500 miles later, you're way the fuck out there. You know, you're way, you know, 
you're nowhere near that original route you were on. And I think up and down go the same way, where you might start to just dip down a little bit. But if you keep going that way, if you veer downward, you know, over a span of time, you're going to be way the fuck down there. And And it just started with you kind of indulging this downcast negative feeling you had inside and surrounding yourself with negative subject matter and so you started descending and that became the route you were on it doesn't mean you have to stay that way but I do think you have to make a choice to maintain where you're at or to ascend a little bit and and uh, it's it's just like when I talk about embracing neutrality instead of trying to make yourself happy. Neutrality is a much more reasonable goal if you're feeling low. Trying to feel just a flat line, and not flat line as in death, but just a flat line neutrality in your own emotional disposition, just trying to feel that way is a much more reasonable goal than trying to jump from a low point to the high point of happiness. And once you're at that state of neutral, happiness suddenly becomes accessible, much more accessible. And if you're no longer happy, you fall back down to neutral and you're not miserable. So you want to operate from this place of neutrality, of equanimity. You want that to be your goal. And you have Stoicism and uh, Pyrrhonism and these different Greek beliefs, these Greek philosophies that are like, you should just stay neutral. And I don't agree with that at all. That's something that I don't embrace. But I like a lot of what they say. And um, it's no surprise that, that ideas like Stoicism and Pyrrhonism, if I'm even saying that right, uh, um, it's no coincidence that they had communication with the East and they both influenced and received Eastern ideas there was a little collaboration there. Uh, but still, I, I don't think that you should shut out the ups and downs. But you should know that there is an intermediate state that will give you more access to the ups. And when you're down, it serves as a stepping stone to get back up. Not that being up is the be-all, end-all. But I think people tend to frame their lives around... If I'm not happy, I'm sad. If I'm not happy, I'm sad. Uh, and, and if and if I'm and I've got to go from sad to happy. It's like you you live this life where you like this pseudo manic depression because you framed your mind around those two possibilities. When there's this thing that can serve as an intermediate stage, and it softens your blow when you fall. And it provides you with a stepping stone when you go up or when you want to go up. And just to go back to the idea, though, of of what you consume, what you pay attention to, what you read, you know, that can provide that step toward neutrality. That can provide you with that stepping stone. That can provide you with that landing pad. And it might be gradual. It probably will be gradual. You don't have to think about it like, oh, in order to ascend, I have to scale a cliff face. I have to scale a cliff face if I'm going to get, if I'm going to feel good at all. It's like, no, you can think of it as a gradual process, just a gradual incline. And it doesn't mean you can't plateau or you won't plateau. You probably will. 
Um, I mean, there's people who they want to climb so bad and they get really high up there and then they plateau and they forgot how high they even got. They forgot how far they, they've come, you know, that that happens, too, uh, when people don't keep themselves in check. They they reach some amazing new height. And just because they've stopped climbing, they forget how high they climbed to even get where they're at. And so that can happen, too. Um, but that doesn't mean you should keep looking down all the time, either. But you can start with just the media that you consume. And this is one of those things they do teach in self-help. They do teach in the positivity industry with its flower clip art. <laughs> And, and uh, happy fonts, you know. This is one of those things they do teach, and just because the industry uh, is hard to swallow sometimes doesn't mean you should completely reject the idea that they are sharing. And that's the other part about it, is when you're climbing, you have a tendency to think, like, I'm going to pick and choose everything that... Uh, Let's just use the example of a cliff face, even though it doesn't have to be a cliff face that you're climbing. Maybe it is. Maybe it is a, a, a sheer cliff face. It's a rock wall, and it turns out it's not actually rock. It's one of those climbing gyms with manufactured little things sticking out, whatever those are called, little things to grab hold of. And the thing about that, if you've ever climbed one of those, they're fun. I've only done it once, but they're fun, and I would like to do it again. Uh, but with those climbing gym walls, is you realize, oh, I can't choose where to grab. And the same would be true if you climb a cliff face, an actual rock cliff face. You can't choose where the little notches are or where the, the little uh, round things are to grab hold of. You have to, they're there, and you have to choose which ones you grab. Sure, there is a level of choice. But you can't decide where they are, and I think that's true for trying to get into a healthier mindset. Mindset. It's true for that as well, where you can't necessarily choose what is going to have a positive impact on you. And for that reason, you have to be able to separate the idea from the vessel that is presenting itself to you. You have to be able to say, okay, I can't choose which thing I'm going to grab hold of, but I can see it for exactly what it is. And that, and you shouldn't be afraid to climb back down a little bit. I mean, I think that happens when people scale cliffs. I'm talking about something I have no expertise in, but uh, what else is new? But uh, you know, sometimes you might have to scale back down a little bit. You might have to go, okay, like I've reached this dead end. There's nothing more for me to grab hold of right here. And I definitely want to keep climbing. So what, is, what can I do? Try to grab something that's not there and fall? No, you climb back down a little bit. And then you say, oh, if I go, instead of going up there where I went... I have to go back down and go to the right a little bit and then go up again. So even though you're, you have to climb back down for a second, it's only to find a new path upward. So that happens too. And I'm just figuring this all out myself. I mean, me even verbalizing this right now, even though this, this is an example I've used before, even me verbalizing this right now is me doing this. Even me verbalizing this is me just kind of trying to find a way to ascend. It's me preaching what I need. 
so it's not like I'm some master here. I might be a cult of one, but the thing about being a cult of one is you are not only your own master, but you're also your own student, you're your, your own slave. You know, you're your own, you're the bottom and you're the top, and you're everything in between too. So when you become a cult of one, you know, it, it's not that you know everything because you also know nothing, but you accept that too. Um, but, uh, this is stuff that, you know, this is a time for me to think and talk and through my own uncertainty, uh, through my own feeling of inability to really, you know, like right now, like none of us can go outside and manipulate the world in the way that we might want to do. And we also recognize where we've missed opportunities to do that when we had the chance so what can we do beyond, you know, watching uh, uh, Netflix? You know, what else can you do beyond, like, downloading video games? What can you do? One thing is to consider all of this. One thing is to consider what you're watching, what you're listening to, what you're playing, and what you're thinking. Just consider it. And don't see this as a waiting game. See, this is a way to engage your mind around things that might actually help you ascend ever so gradually, just ever so gradually. And, it, and if the worst still happens, that doesn't matter. You'll be better off for it. It's not that you are going to save the world by doing that. It's not that you're going to save your life by doing that. You know, by taking an ascendant approach, you're not going to save yourself from death at the end of the day. You might not save the world from some apocalyptic fate at the end of the day. But that doesn't mean there can't be some form of rebirth even that. And you don't even have to be there to witness it, to appreciate the fact that it's going to happen. Oh, you think that, oh, if you're not there to witness it, it doesn't matter? Well, that's a pretty vain, narcissistic way of thinking. I love the idea of some form of rebirth happening, even if I'm not there, especially if I'm not there. Why do I need to be a direct participant in that? I don't. I'm going to die. The world could die. But that doesn't mean that something won't come out of that. And people are saying, this is the end. This is the end. How does it feel to be living the, in the end of the world? Two weeks ago, it wasn't the end of the world. Now it's the end of the world. You know, that, that's what I'm seeing a lot of right now from a lot of different types of people. It's not just one type of person. It's, it's a lot of different people who have just embraced this idea that this is the end of the world. And even if it's tongue-in-cheek, even if it's a joke, and it's okay to joke about it, you know, but even if it is a joke it reinforces that feeling, and if it reinforces that feeling, it's, it makes it real. It makes it real. And you can just as easily see this as the beginning. I did a drawing late last year. If you didn't know I'm an artist, don't forget I'm an artist. The whole world's shut down. I don't want anybody to forget I'm an artist. 
Did you know I'm an artist? Uh, but uh, I did a drawing late last year, and it was called An Ancient Opinion slash The Beginning is Coming. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you it's some kind of prophecy, but it's a general... I, I call it a philosophy. I don't think it's too pretentious to call it a, a philosophy to say that the beginning is coming. And I think you can choose to see this situation that way, and you may not be part of the beginning. You don't have to be part of the beginning to appreciate the fact that the beginning could happen. And you don't have to be a part of the end either. You don't have to see yourself as a witness to the very end. Personally, if if it were to be if the apocalypse were to come, if the end of the world were to truly come, I would rather be part of it than not. I would rather be a witness to the end of the world than not, personally. I don't want to encourage it. You know, I, I don't want to embrace that idea. I don't want to do anything to expedite the end of the world myself. But I would rather be a participant. I mean, that's a great event to be a part of. Imagine telling your great-grandkids about that. I was part of the end of the world. I would rather be there for it than not. And I would rather be there for the beginning than not. Maybe that's my own ego just wanting to be a part of the biggest events ever. Some people will tell their kid about that time they went to the Super Bowl or they saw the Rolling Stones in concert. Uh, Some people will tell their kids about 9-11. I would love to tell my kids about that time that I, I witnessed the end of the world, the rebirth, and the new beginning. I would love to talk to them about that, tell them all about it. Uh, But I do choose to see this as a potential new beginning, and not even potential. I think inevitably there will be a new beginning, and it may, you know, it, it may not involve the human species. And as I said, if there is truly an apocalypse, it's going to be much more gradual. The thing that actually makes life on Earth extinct is going to be far more gradual. In my estimation, according to my calculations... You know, I don't have a calculator, as I mentioned, but according to my mental calculations that don't involve numbers, uh, I, I do believe some sort of true extinction is going to be far more gradual. Um, but I also think that even if extinction is the thing that everyone is worried about when they talk about the end of the world, and not just human extinction, but all life on Earth. If being just a, a big floating ball of dust is what people are talking about when they worry about apocalypse, global warming, uh, some sort of mass extinction through plague, no matter what it is that people are worrying about, um, that could be a new beginning too. A planet with just dust on it, that seems like a, a blank slate. That seems like a new beginning, too. And that doesn't have to be a nihilistic thing where you're like, oh, I can't wait till there's nothing living on the planet. Um, but it can be a thing where you just you accept that that is some form of new beginning as well. That is some form of something closer to emptiness, something closer to neutrality. And that doesn't mean that new life can't grow from there either. We don't know. 
You know, we look at planets like Mars and we think, oh, you know, there's no life on planet Mars or there might be some kind of bacteria trapped below the surface, but we don't see any plants growing. We don't see any animals running around. And maybe it used to be a thriving, fertile, fertile planet. Uh, but uh, we don't know what's going to become of it either. Since we know so little about the phenomenon of life itself, what truly creates life? We don't know what's going to become of Mars, and let's say the Earth becomes an empty, you know, basketball covered in dust. I don't even know. Uh, let's say it becomes that. We don't know what's going to come from that. We just don't know. And anybody who tells you that, whether they're scientific-minded, whether they are into some orthodox, you know, religious uh uh, whether they have some sort of orthodox religious perspective, it doesn't really matter because they don't know. Um, and so why not just focus on the ascendant? Why not focus on things that are going to just help you gradually rise just a little bit? Why would you not want to be in that position if you have any choice at all? And the truth is you do. And you can't pick and choose the things that are going to help you ascend, but you can make the choice to accept them. And you can start by not listening to REM, it's the end of the world as we know it. You can start there, seriously. You can start there. You can start there by not immersing yourself in this indulgent plague culture that is already existed because we already have things that deal with this subject matter, but why immerse yourself in that? Why indulge that? It's bad enough that I can't stop talking about current events, but obviously they're relevant. It's another thing to indulge too much in this plague culture. Because if we have to deal with the real plague, if we have to re deal with real pandemonium and pestilence, why do you want to base the entire culture around that, too? If this is something we're trying to avoid, why are you letting it influence every dimension of your life? So start there. Turn off REM. You know, uh, just focus on things that are not necessarily marketed as positive, but focus on things that give you that little feeling, that give you some kind of little glow. Because when all your words, when all your descriptions are gone, I think that's what it all comes down to. What makes you feel like there is some little glow inside of you? This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can 